Guys, we'll start with a couple of questions this morning. And the first is one up there. Who speaks for God? Uh, if somebody proposes to you that they're speaking for God, that they're God's representative, that they have God's truth, uh, are they? Who has authority to speak for God? How do you determine if somebody's speaking for God or not? And if we conclude that God is speaking, uh, are we, in fact, listening? So if we conclude God is speaking, are we, in fact, listening? So we'll be talking about this morning in the Consider Job series. And this morning's message is a little different than the others because it includes this whole issue of uh, is God speaking or not? And in part, how do we know? Uh, we're, we're actually, uh, the title of this morning's is uh, Job's Reproof by Elihu. And Elihu's a question mark. And this guy comes out of nowhere. He just shows up in the story. Chapter 32, there's been no introduction to him. He's gone in chapter 42 when the book winds down. And the whole question is, who is this guy? And do we treat his words as God's words or not? And if his words are God's words, then is Job listening in the context? But applicationally, when God's speaking, and we're confident of that, are we listening? So, Elihu is going to reprove Job and Job's friends. He's also going to speak in defense of God. But one of the main things, one of the main hurdles we have before we even get into that is deciding, uh, is he God spoken or not? We'll start with a text and then we'll go from there. So we'll be in Job. I hope you have a study sheet. So this is where Elihu steps in. Job 32. So we've already seen Job's losses, Job's wife. We've hopped, skipped, and jumped through Job's responses and then Job's friends, their accusations through all of those chapters through 31. Now we're up to chapter 32 when Elihu joins the fray. So he says, Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He, we could say, also burned with anger at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three, three men, he burned with anger. So, a little something about Elihu himself. So, we know a few things, not much, just like Job's friends. Again, he shows up out of nowhere, no introduction. And when he's done speaking, he's done. God never makes a reference to him after that. Uh, he reproves Job's three friends. God does, and yet when they're reproved, God doesn't make any mention of Elihu. Not positively, not negatively. He's younger than the other guys, we know. He's younger enough to say, you're older and I'm younger, that's why I listened. He also, he claims knowledge that's perfect in one place. In fact, when you read it, it sounds really arrogant because he says, my knowledge is perfect. And usually when scripture uses a term like perfect, it's a little different than we use today. So especially in the New Testament, it says perfect. It usually means something that is as it should be. Something is fully developed as it should be. And it means something like that here. 
But he says, of himself, my words, my description here, my explanation is everything it should be. He also implies very strongly that he is speaking for God. He's got the Spirit of God. God is speaking through him, he says. So he claims to be speaking for God. And he's ticked. And we get that four times. He's angry with Job, and he's angry with Job's friends. Now, before you do anything with Elihu, you've got to figure out, you read through, you've got to determine, is he speaking for God or not? Because that makes all the difference in, in how you receive what's being said, right? So when we read about the friends' comments, some of what they said were general truths. You say, yeah, they said things that were true, but the whole focus of what they were saying was misapplied. So God indicts them, just as Job had indicted them, and Elihu will indict them. So we don't listen to them the same way we might Elihu if we conclude that he is in fact speaking for God in a way Job wasn't and in a way Job's friends weren't. So I'm going to read, to this, read you this from John Piper. He did a paper on Job. This is from a couple decades ago, but I think it stood up well. And it's interesting, you know, uh, and the reason I'm bringing this up is if you read commentators or theologians on Elihu, some will say this. They'll say, it's quite clear Elihu isn't speaking for God. He's wrong, just like the other friends. And then you read other guys, and they'll say with equal clarity, it's clear Elihu is God's man. And then you'll read things in between, like we think Elihu is speaking for God, or we think he's not. So guys, depending on who you pick and choose when you read about him, it is all over the place. And I'm reading Piper's because this is my take, and this is the tack we're taking this morning. So everything I'm following up on is dependent on this being right. So if I'm wrong, throw out the teaching next year or whatever. But this is what Piper says. The three friends have been wrong. Suffering is not the proof of wickedness. Remember, they said, Job, you're wicked because you're suffering. And Job had been wrong. His suffering was not the proof of God's arbitrariness. You remember, Job says, I've done nothing. I'm getting this suffering. God's unjust. Nor had God become his enemy. Elihu has come to put the argument on a new footing. So we're shifting gears once he comes in. Job had been successful in silencing Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but he does not say one word against Elihu, even though Elihu challenged him in 33.32 when he said, If you have anything to say, answer me. If you remember, he doesn't. The easiest explanation for this silence is that Job agreed with him. And by the way, one of the things that strengthens the thought that Elihu is in fact speaking for God is that many of the elements that he says, or this tack with Job when he says, Job, do you have anything to say? And Job doesn't. That's essentially what happens when God challenges Job to speak back to him as well. It's the same thing that happens. He says, God does not rebuke Elihu. Why not? probably because Elihu's words are not in the same class with the words of those three. Elihu's words are true and prepare the way for the final decisive words of God. Even though Job was a righteous man, he was not a sinlessly perfect man. There was a sediment of pride that began to cloud the purity of his life when it was stirred up by suffering. So Piper's view, and mine, I share that same view, is that Elihu does speak for God, and so that informs the way we're going to respond to the things he says. Okay, so he's going to start with indicting Job's friends. 
And guys, just like we did with Job's responses, Job's friends' responses, we're jumping through. We're hop, skipping, jumping through. We're just trying to get the major points because we don't have time to do more than that. In Job 32, 11 and 12, Elihu says this, Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Ellie says, I patiently waited for you guys to tell Job the way things are, and you've absolutely failed. What, what, you have not defended God rightly. You have not spoken rightly of Job either. So he says, I patiently listened, and you had nothing to say that was adequate in addressing Job's situation or speaking to God. So Elihu says they failed miserably in understanding Job's situation and what God made of Job's situation, just as they had failed miserably, we saw last time, about bringing sympathy or consolation to Job. They had failed all the way around, and Elihu was pointing that out. But he's going to spend most of his time indicting Job and not these friends. So when he starts, it's with the friends. And he says, you haven't been adequate. Nothing that you've said has been adequate to speak to Job's situation or to represent God. Now, think of this for just a second. How many here have uh, been Christians for 10 years or more? 10 years or more. How many have been 20 years or more? 30 years or more? I'm going to leave it at that because I don't want to show how old some of us in here are. <laughs> 30 years or more. So, if you've been a Christian, and I'm using this phrase carefully, if you've been a Christian for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, if you have age as a Christian, do you have wisdom adequate to speak into someone's life in their point of suffering or loss or confusion? See, Elihu said, he's implying, these old guys, they should have known, and they didn't. They got nothing right, but they should have. They had age. We might have age in the Lord, right? We might say we've been a Christian, we might say we've been a Christian 40 years or 50 years. Is that any indication that we will be able to have God's wisdom to speak into someone's life when they need some confirmation, some encouragement, some clarity? Is simply time as a Christian adequate? And we answer it's not. Because it wasn't adequate for those guys either. Uh, time as a Christian may be meaningless if we haven't matured. And what that requires for us, it requires humility by acknowledging we don't know what we should. And that means humility in getting in God's Word daily because God's Word is the source of truth. It means humbly praying to God. You know, we lack wisdom. James 1, we lack wisdom. Lord, would you give us your wisdom? Wisdom for some of us sometimes, right, in some, someone's uh, moment of suffering is the wisdom and the humility to simply say, I'm sorry and I don't know why this is going on and I don't know what would help. That sometimes is hard to live with, but humility and truth before God, that might be all we have to offer. Or we could say, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for you. I, I can't bring clarity, but I can point you to someone or some resource that does. See, I'm afraid for a lot of us, we're like the eternal student. We never graduate. We don't get our diploma. We don't go on. You remember in Hebrews, I can't remember if it's five or six, uh, the writer of Hebrews says to the Hebrews, you should be teachers, but I've got to keep feeding you the same pablum because you've never grown up. If you've walked, if you've known the Lord 
for decades. Do you have the wisdom you should by this time such that you're adequate to help someone in their time of need or suffering because you've been in God's Word, you're humble, you're prayerful, and also you've been in fellowship with others. And this is a helpful uh, clarification. Have you been intentionally in fellowship with others? And I don't mean social media here. Are we rubbing shoulders with each other around the issues of life and the claims of the Scriptures? And you know, Francis Bacon said a couple generations ago, uh, reading makes a wide man, a broad man. It increases your scope of knowledge of the world. Reading. He said concourse, or we would say conversation, makes a ready man. You see, you've interacted with these issues before. You've talked about God's Word, the Scriptures. You've talked about these scenarios in life with other people. So when you see one of these things come up, you're ready to address it. Then he finished by saying, writing makes an exact man, which if you try and write, you know, is true as well. So it's not, being a Christian a long time doesn't mean anything in our ability to be helpful with others as Elihu indicted Job's friends for. They weren't able to speak, and they should have been. They should have been able to. Okay. So Elihu's going to indict Job here as well. And we're going to start in Job 33, verses 9 through 12. And again, I'm going to cherry pick just to get the flavor of what he's saying. He says at verse 9, you say, so he's speaking to Job. He says, Job, this is what you've said. I am pure, without transgression. I am clean. There's no iniquity in me. Behold, he, God, finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He locks me up. He watches all my paths for harm. He's looking to see where I am or what I'm doing so he can harm me. And then Elihu says, Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. So Elihu indicts Job. He says, What you're saying isn't true to start with. And God is greater than you. And so what you're saying against God, it holds no water. It's wrong. You're wrong in both counts. He says in chapter 34, verses 5 through 9, Job has said, he's quoting Job back to him, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. Job says, I'm more righteous than God. We've seen this in Job's response. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Again, Job has said throughout, I have no sin, I'm guilty of nothing. You remember, God had called him blameless on the front end of the book, but once the suffering hit, then Job started sinning. And that's what Elihu was pointing out. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers, and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Now, please uh, don't misunderstand what Elihu is saying here. When he says, traveling with evildoers, walking with wicked men, he's not actually saying Job has lived his life as the wicked among the wicked. Uh, you know, if you guys, if you say I'm a Christian, and someone else sees you not behaving like a Christian, they might say to you, I know you said you're a Christian, but you don't look like one. And it's this whole thing of appearances. Well, Elihu says to Job, 
you sound like the wicked. When you make these statements about your sinlessness and you're, you're indicting God instead, your speech is like that of the wicked. You have joined the wicked, if you will, verbally because you've said things the righteous wouldn't say. Chapter 34, verses 35 through 37, he says, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end. I, I wish he says that this thing would go out and take its natural course right to the end because he answers like wicked men. His speech is like the wicked. He adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. So Elihu's indictment of Job is that within the context of his suffering, he's elevated himself at God's expense. And that's what we saw when we looked at Job's response before we looked at Job's friends. He says he's not, he's not uh, being punished because of past sins, but once the suffering had started, then his sins started. The pride was raised up. The challenges and the indictments of God started at that point. So, Elihu's declarations, unlike Job's friends, they're true. They're the same things that God will say in chapter 42, and actually 38 through 41. Okay, now Elihu also defends God. And I'm, again, we'll just skip through a few. Chapter 34, verses 12 through 15. These should all be on your study sheet, by the way. He says, God will not do wickedly. Theology is really helpful. God will not do wickedly. God will never do anything that's not right, he says. He can't do wickedly. You can count on it. Verses 18 and 19 in that same chapter, God shows no partiality, no partiality in righteous judgment. It doesn't matter if you're a king or a pauper. It doesn't matter what your national ethnic origin is. It doesn't matter what you're standing in in state, in a culture, or in your time is. None of that matters. God is always righteous. He's a respecter of no man. You can count on God's judgment being right 100% of the time. doesn't matter who's involved. You can count on God. His righteousness. I'll read a few verses here from chapter 37. Uh, he says, Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. And he's changing gears here. And this language you'll know if you remember listening to some of it from chapters 38 through 41. This language precedes the same kind of language God himself will bring up with Job later. He says, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Job, do you know how God makes lightning and how he sends it out? Do you know that? He says, do you know the balancing, interesting word, the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him, who's perfect in knowledge, he says, if you look up in the sky, the clouds, they, they, they look solid sometimes, don't they? But they're balanced right up there in space, and it's just right where God would put them. And sometimes don't you look up there and you say, it looks like a rabbit, or it looks like whatever. He says, that's God's artwork. Do you know anything about that? Is that anything you can do? You remember, this is what God's going to say. You have no platform from which to speak to me, to charge me. You don't have enough knowledge for me to talk to you face to face about any of these things. You don't know enough. You have no standing. He says, uh, You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind. And I'll just stop there. So God, he's forming the clouds. He's forming the lightning. He's throwing the lightning. 
And he says to Job, and by the way, you're a speck on the earth so that when the hot wind blows, you get hot and you can't do anything about it. But God's controlling the weather. He's the weather man and you're the one who's subject to his weather. You can't do anything about it. Who do you think you are to talk to the weather man about the weather or anything else? You have no standing. So God's going to say almost all these same things in almost the same language. Just as God will say later, Elihu says here, you have no platform from which to argue with God. You lack knowledge adequate for that. Now, this is a, a big deal uh, out of this passage, and it's this. And I, um, Elihu says, Job, you've been complaining all, all along that God won't talk to you. You keep saying, I want my day in court. If I could only find God, I would go and I would tell him how things are and he would understand and, and life would be grand because he'd get the truth from me. If only he'd listen to me. If only I could hear from him. And so Elihu to this charge that God's silent, he says, well, no, that's wrong too. He says, God is speaking, but you're not listening. So the first thing he says is this. This is in Job 33, 13 through 18. He says, why do you contend against him, God, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God does speak. God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. God's speaking, you're not listening. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them not just terrifies them, terrifies them with warnings that, for this purpose, he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So he says, well, actually, Job, God, God is speaking, and he's been speaking in your dreams. And if you remember back in Job 7, Job said, I am terrified by God in my dreams. And Elihu says, that was God speaking. And he's not terrifying you just to make you afraid. He's terrifying you to warn you, to preserve you, to spare you, and to save you. That's exactly what Elihu says. Job, God has been speaking. You haven't been listening. God was speaking in the dreams you had, the dreams and the visions by night. Now, you guys know especially in the Old Testament, some in the New too, uh, was common, semi-common, uh, at least in the text, for God to speak to people through dreams. So you go back to Exodus and you think of Jacob, you know, I'm sleeping on a rock and I see a stairway to heaven. I've got a dream and I see God. And Jacob's son Joseph, he has dreams, they're from God, and he sees his family bowing down to him. And then the Pharaoh, and, right, all these things were things to come. Uh, Jacob serves Pharaoh and Pharaoh has a dream. And it's a warning. You've got, yeah, you've got seven good years, but you've got seven bad years of famine. It's a warning to preserve life. Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, God gives him a dream. And when he asked Daniel, what does it mean? Daniel said, man, I wish it was for your enemy because God's saying he's going to judge you unless you humble yourself. It was a warning again. The dreams were warnings. You get in the New Testament things like Matthew with the uh, incarnation of Jesus I think it's four or five times instances in which Joseph is warned by God in a dream where to go or when, where not to go, when to go or when to stay. So God was speaking through these dreams and visions. Now, Peter says 
and we're skipping around a little bit. We'll make a point here at the end in just a second. Peter says this in Acts 2. And if you remember the setting there, Jesus was taken back up into heaven in Acts 1. He's told the disciples, you wait here in Jerusalem because the power you're going to get, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to be empowered to be my witnesses. And so in chapter 2, that's what happens. You remember the scene? They're in an upper room. The wind blows through. The wind's a symbol of the Spirit in John 4. Tongues of fire are over their head. Fire was in the Old Testament routinely an image of God, God's presence. And they start speaking in languages they didn't know. They get it. This is the Spirit. So when Peter, you know, the, the noise has created a tumult. The city has come around where they are. And so Peter goes out to explain what's happening and to share the gospel about Christ. In that context, he says this in Acts 2, verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. So he says, in the age of the Spirit, which has just arrived, he quotes Joel, the prophet Joel from the Old Testament, and he says, when the Spirit comes, this is what you're going to get. God's going to communicate through prophecy, visions, and dreams. And by the way, that's exactly what you see in the book of Acts. You know, Peter has visions that direct him. Paul has visions that direct him. You have prophetic utterances. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about that. So you have all these things you see in the age of the Spirit. We say, absolutely, God's communicating in that way. Now, I'm not sure that God's ever spoken to me in a dream or a vision. I do feel like God said some things to me, and I don't mean verbally out loud, and I don't mean new uh, truth, personal things to me in the, in the time. Um, but think about when, when Elihu makes this claim to Job, God speaks in uh, dreams and visions. <clears throat> when is that? And what's the setting? Because this is important. So just ballpark, just to get some context, ballpark. If we say Abraham's around 2000 B.C., rough figure but close, and we're guessing Job lives about the same time as Abraham, when is God's Word in writing, at least in any significant form? Do you know when that is? And we'll just say Moses. And so we'll say for a round figure, 1400 B.C., you got 600 years there before you go from God speaking in dreams and visions to God's written word being available. Does it make sense that God was speaking in dreams and visions to individuals in that day before his word was given? Absolutely. And of course what you've seen, and this is inarguable. I want to say two things here. I'm careful not to say what God will and won't do if God hasn't said I will or won't do it, okay? I'm not God. I'm not telling him what he may or may not do. So if someone says to me, I had a dream, I had a vision, God revealed something to me. I'm willing to listen, okay? I'm willing to listen. I'm open. I want to compare it to the Scripture. I want to be careful. I want to hold those things lightly. But at the end of the period of Acts, you know, by at least around 95 A.D., book of Revelation's complete, you've got the written Word of God. And what do you see historically? This is inarguable. The number of miracles that attest to the gospel, what do they do? They decline. The record of dreams and visions as the means by which God communicates to us, what do they do? They decline. I'm not saying they go away entirely, but they definitely decline. God's word written was not available when Job lived, but it is available now. God's word is available now. So, is God speaking today? He's speaking. And this is the two key ways he's spoken. When you look in Hebrews 1, 
it starts out by saying this. In the past ages, God has spoken to our fathers through many times and many ways. God has spoken in the time, dreams and visions, absolutely. But then it says, but in these days, he has spoken to us in his son. That's Jesus. You know, John 1 calls Jesus the Logos, the, the perfect revelation of himself, of God. So guys, this is one of the things. If someone tells you they speak for God and they don't say Jesus is God the Son, that's the purpose, the person of Jesus, and they don't say that his work on the cross was adequate for our salvation, the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, if they don't come with both of those, you don't listen to them because they're not speaking for God. This is exactly what John says in 1 John. There used to be these guys, they were with us, but they went out from us, and it's because they actually have the spirit of Antichrist. So when you hear Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses say they speak for God, they're liars and they're lying. They don't speak for God because they deny the Son. So if someone comes and they say, I'm speaking for God, and they deny the person or the work of Jesus, they're not. Don't listen to them. The other thing is this. Peter... Right? Peter heard Jesus speak through all those years of ministry. And Peter heard God the Father speak on the Mount of Transfiguration when he said, this is my beloved son, I'm well pleased, you listen to him. Peter heard that on the mountain when he saw Moses and Elijah, Old Testament representatives. But he says in 2 Peter 1, he says we have the more sure word of prophecy than my personal experience of hearing a voice from heaven. We've got the word of God. And so, guys, this is the thing today. God is speaking. He has spoken. He's spoken in the Son. He's spoken in His Word. Are we listening? So can I say this again? Are we reading our Bibles? God's spoken. Are we listening? There's nothing more valuable than knowing what God has said is true. You and I not only don't have what's adequate to meet our own crises and emergencies, we have nothing to offer anyone else if we don't know the truth of God's Word. God has spoken. Are we listening? Are we taking in that absolute standard of truth? The other thing Elihu is going to say here, uh, not just dreams and visions, Job, but that God speaks through pain. God speaks through suffering. Listen to this from chapter 33, verses 19 through 22. He says, Man is also rebuked, reproved, corrected, warned, with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food where you feel so bad you don't want to eat anything nothing sounds good his flesh is so wasted away that it can't be seen his bones that were not seen now they stick out they look like a pile of bones does you think this sounds like what job looked like then because i do his soul draws near the pit Remember Job had said, I just wish I'd died, and I wish I was dead now. And his life to those who bring death. And that sounds, again, just like Job. And in that, Elihu's saying, Job, God has not only spoken in your dreams, but God is speaking in your suffering, and you're not listening. You're not listening. It's not that he's silent. He's speaking. You haven't listened to him. Uh, one of the best-known quotes, I think, uh, in contemporary parlance at least, comes from his writing, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. You probably heard the end, but I'm going to read just a little bit of this to put it in context. 
Lewis says this, and this is about as insightful on this issue as it gets. He says, The human spirit will not even begin to correct self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. So remember Job? He's blameless when it's blue lights. Sorry. Blue skies, green lights. Blue skies, green lights. When everything's well with it. Now, error and sin both have this property that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their innocence. Don't you find that to be true? You remember why did God allow all the suffering in Job? Because deep down there, what was lurking in Job? Pride. Terrible pride. By which he was willing to accuse God to justify himself. It was lurking beneath. That's what Lewis is saying. That the deeper the suspects, they are masked evil. Pain is unmasked, it's unmissable evil. Every man knows something is wrong when he is being hurt. And that's the whole thing with pain, right? If I'm hurting, something's wrong and it needs attention. We can rest contentedly in our sins. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Elihu says to Job, God is speaking. Your pain, your suffering is his speech, but again, you're not listening. God is speaking, you're not listening. Uh, just to cover bases and just to make sure, um, you never know who's going to be listening, what the context is. I want to make sure that uh, we don't misrepresent what God's saying here and that hopefully I'm not misrepresented later. Uh, God is not saying that he accepts responsibility for evil here, okay? If you've been hurt, maligned, molested, injured by others, God is not saying that he instigated the wrongs done to you so that he could use it in this case. Remember, we've said God's sovereign. He either causes all things or he allows all things. But right, the world's in the power of the evil one. Sin and death is part of every person's experience on the earth. But God's not claiming to be the instigator of evil deeds done against you or me or people you know. So we want to make sure we're not implying that. But we are saying this. If you're a Christian, or if you're speaking to someone who's not, but you want to represent God accurately, you can say this. No matter what evil has been done to me, as a child of God, I have God's promise that he'll take the worst of evils and he will somehow, in ways only he can, flip it on its head so that what was intended for evil actually ends up being for my good. He's not saying the evil is good. He's simply saying he will take evil things and turn them around to bless us. And Jesus, again, is the biggest example of this, right? There's no more wicked deed ever done in the history of the world than the crucifixion of the Son of God. Nothing. Nothing compares to that. Why did God do that? Now remember, that was God's plan. Why did he do that? Because he hated his son? Because he loved his son. And because he wanted to heap more honor and praise on his son. So he has God the Son become the Son of God on earth so that he could raise him up in eternity and he would be more lauded and more praised for his role as our Redeemer. Well, God does things like that when other people treat us out of evil or wickedness or shamefully, or whatever, okay? We have God's promise He'll use those things. God is not some heavenly uh, tyrant who's hurting us. That's not what we're saying. He'll use it, 
for a good, but he's not instigating that. I'm reading a lot because other people have said better than I can some of the things I want you to hear this morning. So I'm going to read this from Piper also. He says this about God speaking through suffering. God's purpose for the righteous in these dreams, this is out of Job, and in this sickness is not to punish but to save. To save from contemplated evil deeds and from pride and ultimately from death. Elihu does not picture God as an angry judge, but as a redeemer, a savior, a rescuer, a doctor. The pain he causes is like the surgeon's knife, not like the executioner's whip. There are dimensions of godliness that the righteous can only learn through affliction. And this is what same thing that's said in Hebrews 12. Discipline at the moment is not something that we relish or like, but it produces something that can't be produced otherwise. He says, the new slant that Elihu gives is that the suffering of the righteous is not the fire of destruction, but the fire that refines the gold of their goodness. For the righteous, it is not punitive, it's not punishment. You remember, that's what Job's friend said. God's punishing you. Piper says, no, he's not. And that's what Elihu said, no, he's not. He's refining you. Not punitive, but it's curative. Suffering is not dispensed willy-nilly among the people of God. That's what Job said. There's no purpose to this. You're harming me. There's no cause. It is apportioned to us as individually designed expert therapy by the loving hand of our great physician. And its aim is that our faith might be refined, our holiness might be enlarged, our soul might be saved, and our God might be glorified. That's a great, great way of summing this up. Absolutely spot on. You got some references there on your study sheet to some verses that say that very same thing. Let me ask you this. So, reviewing. And we're sort of winding down on the book of Job. We've just got a couple messages left. So, Job gets everything wrong. Job gets God wrong. Job's friends get Job and God wrong. So, how does Elihu get it right? How did he get this thing right? The first thing you'll notice is, and by the way, these are just some handles. You might come up with more. Um, these are mechanics, sort of, and I'll mention that here as we wind down just a second. Um, but they're important. Elihu listened before he spoke. Uh, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings. I gave you my attention. Do you think that was easy for... Have you ever been in a conversation and someone said something, you know, that's just wrong or that's right and I want to have my amen or my contradiction and you just jump in, right? You just talk over the top of them. <laughs> you guys ever... You ever sit talk with the couples where one starts speaking and then the other talks over the top of them and you're going like this? You're just wondering <laughs> who to listen to? Well, Elihu says, I listened. And you know what? It wasn't easy for him because this is what he says also. I am full of words. The Spirit is constraining me. I'm impelled. He says, my belly is like wine that has no vent. He says, basically, I am ready to explode. I need to talk. But I've disciplined myself to listen. I've listened. I've heard Job out. I've heard Job's friends out. I've heard the whole thing. I didn't interrupt. I listened to everything he had to say before I spoke. He listened before he spoke. James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak. We were talking about this at home group last week. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. That's a very hard thing to do. It's exactly what Elihu does. In fact, Proverbs says we're fools when we answer before we know the end of the matter, before someone has completed the end of a matter. M many of us speak like fools. He disciplined himself to 
to wait until he'd heard everything out. The second thing he did is he remained objective. This is very difficult also. Like if Elihu knew Job better, he could have said, I'm taking sides, I'm going to defend Job, even though everything Job has said isn't true. I'm taking sides, I'm defending Job. Or I'm against Job, I'm accusing Job, I'm on these other guys' side. He didn't, he didn't either. He was objective. He remained objective. He said this in 32.21, I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery towards any person. I'm treating everyone the same, just like God does. I'm treating everyone the same. And this is really helpful. And by the way, this is a tactic or a tool that's typically recommended today by uh, counselors and psychologists. Did you notice when we read part of these, he quoted Job's words back to him. If, Job, if, if, if he had misquoted or misrepresented Job, he was doing so with Job's own words, and Job could have responded and said, no, you've got me all wrong. But he didn't, because he got him right, because he quoted his own words back to him. He didn't make anything up. That, he remained objective, quoted Job's words, and he didn't take sides. This is huge also. He had faith in God's character. He knew something about God of which his mind could not be changed. Remember, Job starts and everything's great. He and God are great. But then the suffering comes in and everything for him changes about his understanding of God. He didn't have faith adequate in God when the suffering came to know that God wasn't abusing him. Job 36, 2 and 3, um, he says, I have something yet to say, Elihu does, on God's behalf, I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. Job, God is righteous. He's always righteous. God can never be wicked. He can never be evil. He's righteous. He's always righteous. He's righteous to you. It can't be otherwise. I ascribe righteousness to God because that's what's true of God. And that doesn't change dependent on my circumstances. It's always true. And he knows that. He says in 36, 22 and 23, God is exalted in power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? See, again, here he's saying, God is God and you're not. And nobody has the equality with God adequate to speak back to God. You'll see the same argument in Romans 9. God's the potter, you're a lump of clay. God can do what he wants. And the clay has no right to say to the potter, why have you made me this way? We're the dust. God's God. Elihu says, there's no argument to be had here. This is an unbreachable chasm or gulf. You can't get across. You have no place by which to argue against God. And this is the last thing. He didn't draw conclusions that he couldn't have drawn clearly. Do you remember both Job and his friends are trying to answer the big overarching why questions? Why did God let this happen? Or, or um, Job, it must be this because you're being punished, obviously. They tried to answer the big why question. You know what? Elihu never does. He speaks only to what has been said. He speaks only to what was clear. He didn't go to the right or the left. He focused on what was going on in the moment and on what had been said. Um, so, as I wind down, as I promise here, um, these are handholds, except number three, and they, they can be kind of mechanical. You could be a person who's not a Christian, and you could do one, two, and four. Wouldn't make you a Christian. Wouldn't mean you're speaking for God. Uh, 
we are in the age of the Spirit. You and I as believers, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the truth of God's Word. Scripture says, Galatians 5, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Guys, if we're walking in the Spirit, these become the things we do. If we're walking in the flesh and we do these, we're still a fleshly carnal Christian who's doing something right in the moment. But what we want to do is be Spirit-informed, truth-informed believers for whom these are the normal things of life. So, last, last. In Isaiah 8, um, Isaiah's responding to Israel in his day, and he said basically this, you guys are going to idols, and you're going to mediums, because you hope that the idols will speak to you, or the mediums will talk to the dead, and they'll tell you how things are. You'll get God's word through a dumb idol or through the dead. And so Isaiah says this, To the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. There's no light, there's no revelation, there's no truth from God unless they're speaking from God's law, His word, and His testimony, the prophets, if you will, in Isaiah's day, the wisdom literature. For you and I today, God is speaking. The question is not, is God speaking or has God spoken? The question is, are we listening? God has spoken, are we listening? And are we able to honor God and help others because we're taking advantage of the truth spoken humbly, spiritually, from God's Word, in His Word, with each other, adequate to grow up in Christ and be helped to others as Elihu was to Job. God help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.